Well, if you did your pre-reading assignment for this morning of Genesis chapter 34, you're probably thinking, as I am, it is an ugly chapter. You may be holding a beautiful Bible in your hands, but it has an ugly chapter in it. We do not like to read these things in the Bible. We do not want to hear a sermon with a title and a subtitle, especially this title and this subtitle, No Grace to be Found, Lessons from the Ugliness of Humiliation and the Shamefulness of Disgrace. But it is the next chapter in God's Word for us, and it is there for us. And we dare not skip difficult chapters, perhaps we lean into them even more because they are representative of the difficulties that we too face in this fallen world. Maybe just to help out, take a look at your sermon outline and see this sermon theme. Everyone sins and is in need of grace. Everyone has been humiliated by others. And everyone has disgraced others. Yet, we who have received God's grace must not deny the grace of the gospel to others. It's as positive a statement as I could make regarding this ugly chapter. Let me read chapter 34, and let's take it in and pray the Lord would teach us about grace. Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had borne to Jacob, went out to see the women of the land. And when Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, he seized her and lay with her and humiliated her. And his soul was drawn to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob. He loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. So Shechem spoke to his father Hamor, saying, Get me this girl for my wife. Now Jacob heard that he had defiled his daughter Dinah. But his sons were with his livestock in the field, so Jacob held his peace until they came. And Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. The sons of Jacob had come in from the field as soon as they had heard of it. And the men were indignant and very angry because he had done an outrageous thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, for such a thing must not be done. But Hamar spoke with them, saying, The soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him to be his wife. Make marriages with us. Give your daughters to us and take our daughters for yourselves. You shall dwell with us, and the land shall be open to you. Dwell and trade in it and get property in it. Shechem also said to her father and her brothers, Let me find favor in your eyes. And whatever you say to me, I will give. Ask me for as great a bride price and gift as you will, and I will give whatever you say to me. Only give me the young woman to be my wife. The sons of Jacob answered Shechem and his father Hamor deceitfully, because he had defiled their sister Dinah. They said to them, "Mm, We cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who's uncircumcised, for that would be a disgrace to us. Only on this condition will we agree with you, that you will become as we are by every male among you being circumcised. Then 
we will give our daughters to you, and we will take your daughters to ourselves, and we will dwell with you and become one people. But if you will not listen to us and be circumcised, then we will take our daughter and we will be gone. Their words pleased Hamor and Hamor's son Shechem. And the young man did not delay to do the thing because he delighted in Jacob's daughter. Now he was the most honored of all his father's house. So Hamar and his son Shechem came to the gate of their city and spoke to the men of their city, saying, These men are at peace with us. Let them dwell in the land and trade in it. For behold, the land is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters as wives and let us give them our daughters. Only on this one condition will the men agree to dwell with us and become one people, when every male among us is circumcised as they are circumcised. Will not their livestock, their property, and all their beasts be ours? Only let us agree with them, and they will dwell with us. And all who went out of the gate of the city listened to Hamor and his son Shechem, and every male was circumcised, and all who went out of the gate of the city. On the third day, when they were sore, Two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, took their swords and came against the city while it felt secure and killed all the males. They killed Hamor and his son Shechem with the sword and took Dinah out of Shechem's house and went away. The sons of Jacob came upon the slain and plundered the city because they had defiled their sister. They took their flocks and their herds, their donkeys, and whatever was in the city and in the field, all their wealth, all their little ones and their wives, all that was in the houses, they captured and plundered. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, You have brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites. My numbers are few, and if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. But they said, Should he treat our sister like a prostitute? We don't like to read about such things in our Bibles. The Holy Scriptures seem an unseemly place for such heinous acts. And yet... When we run across such things in the news or in our Twitter or Instagram feeds, we're glued to them. When we hear them in our true, true crime podcast, we're horrified, but we want to know every detail. But we're troubled when we read about them in Scripture. Because we know that Scripture is God-breathed and it's profitable for teaching and for reproof, for correction and for training in righteousness. But there's nothing in this chapter that we ought to do. Everyone gets everything wrong. No one gets anything right. So the profit to our souls in Genesis chapter 34 must be a negative lesson. It must be a warning to us. Lessons that come from the presence of sin and the absence of grace. There are two humiliations here. You've seen them. True gross atrocities. The first is in verses 1 and 2. Dinah went out. Shechem took her. Humility number one is the rape of Dinah. 
The second is in verse 25. Simeon and Levi took and came against. Humility number two is the slaughter of the Shechemites. And we have to wonder, why in the world is this here? Why is chapter 34 here? Think about it literally. Back one chapter, chapter 33, Jacob was doing so well. He was really progressing. He escaped Esau's wrath. He enters the land, and the very last verse of that chapter points to God. Chapter 33, verse 20, Jacob erects an altar for the worship and calls it God, God of Israel. When we look ahead to chapter 35, it begins pointing us to God. The very first word, Genesis chapter 35, verse 1, God said to Jacob, arise and go to Bethel and dwell there. But here in the middle, chapter 34, there's no mention of God. His name does not appear. Likewise, there is no grace. Grace does not appear. Let's walk through and review the ugly humiliation that takes place. First, Dinah goes out. Dinah went out to see the women of the land. Dinah goes out from the safety of her father's ranch in Sukkoth towards the city of Shechem to see the women of the land. Now, we'd like to know what Dinah was thinking, but we're not told. We have to be careful with our speculations. It's not to say that there aren't any speculations that we ought to consider. We just have to admit that they're speculations. We don't know what Dinah was thinking. The entire passage indicates that Dinah is completely innocent, specifically in the matter of her rape. Dinah is the innocent victim here. We do know a little bit about the women of the land. Because of God's covenant, Abraham would not let his son Isaac marry a Canaanite woman. Remember, he sent his servant off to Haran to find one from his own clan. Isaac and Rebekah loathed the Hittite women that Esau had married. They even loathed their own lives because of the impact that the Hittite women made in their lives. And they would not let Jacob then marry a woman of the land. They sent him off to Haran as well to get a wife from their clan. Find no fault in Dinah, but her account, her account shows us that sooner or later, as the people of God settle in the land, they're going to have to figure out how to live as God's people among those who are not God's people. There's a clash. It's going to be an ongoing problem. And can you imagine living among people who seem to have no moral problem with rape? The Israelites don't have to imagine that anymore. They're living among them in Canaan. Lest you think that we're above it all, can you imagine living with a people, living among a people who seem to have no moral problem with killing unborn children in the womb? See, we don't have to imagine that either, do we? We're not so far removed as we might at first think. You see, we too are trying to figure out how to live as God's people among those who are not God's people. And that's the context of this terrible circumstance. Next, Shechem humiliates Dinah. He saw her, he took her, he lay with her, he humiliated her. These are four forceful, sudden, violent verbs. There's no consent, this is rape. 
And the verb humiliated describes the nature of all sexual sin. It is shameful and defiling and humiliating. Shechem did this horrific act. The brothers get this. Dinah's brothers get this. They're outraged, angry, indignant. For such a thing should not be done, they proclaim. Now, if we do just, just a little bit of math, the sons of Jacob are probably in their late teens to early 20s. Dinah's somewhere between probably maybe 14 and 18. We don't know exactly, but somewhere in that range. Dinah went out. Shechem raped her. Dinah's brothers are angry. And here comes Hamor, Shechem's dad. Hamor comes to negotiate with Israel. Shechem, you see, tells his dad that he wants to marry Dinah. Get me this girl for my wife. Apparently, Shechem is used to getting what he wants from his father, and Hamor is used to giving his son what he wants. So Hamor goes out to talk to Jacob, but ends up negotiating with Jacob's sons. And the sons are really angry. Hamor has no words for the rape. He has no apology, no remorse, no sense of guilt, no moral problem at all with what's taken place. Hamor is literally business as usual, beginning with securing Dinah as a wife for his son Shechem. Hamor says, the soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. See, Shechem has fallen in love with Dinah and wants to marry her. Hamor goes, please, please give her to him to be his wife. And then, speaking of wives, I've got an idea. Give your daughters to us and take our daughters to yourself. Let's all marry. You shall dwell with us, and the land shall be open to you. Dwell and trade in it and get property in it. That get property is literally the word possess. Possess it. Let's all be one big happy family. What do you say? Just then, Shechem chimes in. I'll pay you as much as you want for a bride price. Just give me Dinah to be my wife. And this absolutely enrages Dinah's brothers. The man who raped their sister now wants to pay for her. What they hear is Shechem treating their sister like a prostitute. Now we have the sons and their deception of the Shechemites. Moses, the author, tells us right up front so we understand perfectly what's taking place. The sons of Jacob answered Shechem and his father Hamor deceitfully. This is all a deception because they had defiled, he had defiled their sister Dinah. You see, the sons of the deceiver are now going to go on to deceive because they don't want Shechem's money. They want their sister's honor back. They agree to become one big happy family on one condition. Every male who lives in Shechem now remember, there's Shechem who's a person, and there's Shechem that's the city. So you're just going to have to figure out by context which Shechem I'm talking about. Every male who lives in Shechem must be circumcised. So Hamor agrees that all the men of Shechem should be circumcised. But the sons of Jacob didn't mean it. It wasn't a true offer. It was not a good faith 
negotiation. On the third day after their circumcision, when all of the men of the city were sore and weakened and thinking about something other than defending the city from attack, Simeon and Levi execute their revenge. They kill all the men of Shechem, including Hamar, including Shechem. Just as Shechem took Dinah for himself, Simeon and Levi took their swords to the Shemites. Their hate led to murder. And then the rest of the brothers come along after, afterwards to pillage the city, taking everything and everyone, including Dinah. And then towards the end, we have Jacob rebuking Simeon and Levi. Jacob has been passive and silent the whole time until now. He rebukes Simeon and Levi, not because of their murderous revenge, but because their murderous revenge has stunk up his reputation with unbelieving peoples in the land. Well, that's a review. We need to do a little bit of analysis of the shameful disgrace. The first, I think, we should look at is Jacob's indifference. The problem with Jacob is that he doesn't do anything. You know, Moses goes out of his way to describe Dinah six times as Jacob's daughter. Jacob's daughter, Jacob's daughter, Jacob's daughter. But when Jacob heard that his daughter had been raped, he did nothing. He said nothing. Jacob should have immediately confronted the sin of Shechem right then and there. But Jacob is indifferent to Dinah because Jacob doesn't care about Dinah. She is his daughter by his wife Leah, and Jacob doesn't care about Leah. Jacob lacks the control that he should have as a father and as the head of the household. He was responsible to not let Dinah go out in the first place. Jacob's a shameful disgrace of a father. When Hamar comes to make a deal with Jacob, Jacob says nothing. He's in the background as his sons do all the dealing. Moses goes out of his way to describe these sons five times as Jacob's sons. Jacob's sons, Jacob's sons, Jacob's sons. Jacob is the one with the authority to make deals. Jacob is the one responsible to lead his sons through this confrontation. But he says nothing. But he does do something. It's hard to see. Jacob passively agrees to his son's deception and to their false deal. Jacob passively plans to kill and pillage right along with his sons. He's there. Again, Jacob lacks the control that he should have. He should have directed his sons to seek justice, not revenge. Jacob is a shameful disgrace as the leader of his household, the leader of his tribe, his camp. Jacob, remember the initiator? 
The one who takes the lead? The one who's striven with God and prevailed? That Jacob has become dangerous by his passive indifference. But the real problem with Jacob's indifference is that he shows himself to be indifferent to the grace that God has shown to him. Even to show it to his family. I want to I take a look at Shechem's plea. We don't like Shechem. If we saw this rape reported on the evening news, we would say, throw the book at him. He deserves what he gets. If what he gets is justice. Right? You know the headings before each of the chapters in your Bible? You know the headings in Genesis? You know they're not scripture, right? Those, those kind of headings. They're put there by the editors who publish each translation. The heading for chapter 34 in my ESV reads, The Defiling of Dinah. We understand why. The heading in my NASB reads, The Treachery of Jacob's Sons. Which is interesting. The rape of Dinah takes place in the first two verses of the chapter. She's not mentioned that I'm aware of after this chapter. The rest of the chapter is about what happens next. 29 verses about what happens next. How do the Israelites respond to this horrific sin? How do the people of God move forward from this shameful act? Let me ask you a question. We're in that realm of speculation. How does Dinah move forward? We're not told. But isn't the answer by the grace of God? Isn't that the best way forward for Dinah? Won't her belief in the covenant and her trust in the promises wash her clean and restore her? Isn't the precious love and tender care of her heavenly Father better and everlasting? Isn't Dinah's way forward the gospel of grace? Certainly it is. And shouldn't we expect that the way forward for everyone then in this graceless chapter is the grace of God? Certainly it is. So bear with me. We don't like Shechem. He's an entitled brat and he's committed a horrific sin. In verse 2, Shechem saw, he took, and he humiliated Dinah. It's the pattern of sexual sin. But immediately in verse 3, his soul was drawn to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob. He loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. Shechem has had a change of heart towards Dinah. Even if it's a selfish change of heart, it's a change of heart towards her. Bear with me. Shechem still has it backwards. The biblical progression towards marriage is not to have his soul drawn, then to love her, then to speak tenderly to her. That's not the progression. It's exactly backwards. 
He has still gone about this completely wrong. He should have begun by speaking tenderly to her. Then, growing in loving care towards her. Then, having his soul drawn to her in marriage, the one flesh relationship. He's sinned. And he's done everything wrong and backwards. But bear with me. I'm not making a case for Shechem. I'm making a case for grace. The Hebrew word for grace does appear one time in this chapter. It's translated as favor in verse 11. Shechem appeals to Jacob saying, let me find favor in your eyes. And whatever you say to me, I will give. Ask me for as great a bride price and gift as you will, and I will give to you whatever you say to me. Only give me the young woman to be my wife. Now where have we heard that plea before? Where have we heard someone say, let me find favor in your eyes? We only have to go back one chapter. In chapter 33, when Jacob sought forgiveness and grace from his brother Esau, whom he had sinned against, he pleaded with his brother over and over that I might find favor in your sight. If I have found favor in your sight, let me find favor in your sight, my lord Esau. Jacob was pleading for grace with Esau, and Jacob received it. Shechem is a terrible sinner. But he pleads for grace. He pleads for favor in Jacob's sight. Jacob, who has received the matchless grace of God. Jacob, who has received grace from his brother whom he sinned against. Jacob, who more than anyone knows to give grace. But Shechem will not find grace. You see, even in this ugly chapter, there is the opportunity for the people of God to give grace. Jacob could have called Shechem to repentance. He could have told him to worship the God of grace. He could have told him the promises of grace for those who worship God. Don't misunderstand me. Yes, seek justice. There are consequences to Shechem's sin. But at the same time, there should be a call to repentance. At the same time, there should be a clear proclamation of the covenant gospel of grace. The gospel of grace is the only way to move forward in righteousness and in a display of God's glory in this mass of sin. But there is no grace to be found. And that's a shameful disgrace. We should evaluate this double deception. Hamor is a deceiver. His first deception is towards Jacob's sons. He offers them wives and land and property. Uh, They, by the way, are the same things, land, seed, and blessing that God has promised in his covenant. You should notice that. There's a sense in which Hamor is offering the Israelites citizenship in Canaan. 
You can do all this stuff that citizens do. That's how he sells it, his deal to Jacob's sons. But when he sells it to his own people back in Shechem, he tells them about having to be circumcised. There is a price to pay, but it will totally be worth it. By intermarrying, all that theirs is theirs will become ours. We'll become one big, happy, wealthier Shechemite people. We'll have increase and peace and prosperity, and all we have to do is be circumcised. Jacob's son's deception is the greater and more treacherous deception. They have no intention of intermarrying or becoming one people with Hamar. And they use circumcision as a means to accomplish their revenge for Dinah. There's all kinds of irony in this. You know, they say, well, you know, it would be a disgrace for us to intermarry unless all your men are circumcised as we are. Not true. They've already been disgraced by Shechem's rape of Dinah. That's the great disgrace that they're concerned about, that they're consumed with. That's the disgrace they're angry about. But here's the more disgraceful disgrace. What is circumcision? Circumcision is the sign of God's covenant of grace. They tell Hamor about physical circumcision, but they say nothing about God's covenant of grace that it represents. This is a clear an obvious opportunity to extend grace to sinners. They're the ones who brought it up. Not only do they withhold grace, the one thing that actually takes away the disgrace of our sin and makes, makes us one with another, that's, that's what they use, but they, they use the sign of grace to feed their vengeance. How ironic. The sign of the covenant that makes us one with God, they throw out as a, as a deception that, hey, here's how we can be one. And there's no oneness intended. And they are God's people in the land, hiding the truth of the covenant of grace and the glory of God from sinners. This is grievous and shameful. Then we see Simeon and Levi's revenge. You see, Simeon and Levi are, and Dinah are all born of Leah. So Simeon and Levi are, are rightly outraged and should desire justice. But their anger has turned their desire for justice to hatred and revenge. They've learned to deceive like their father Jacob. And they've conceived their own unsanctioned holy war against the Shechemites. Dinah's rape is a terrible thing. They would be justified to seek vengeance, to even pray to God for vengeance, but not to pursue revenge. This is an intense overreaction to kill every man in the city. At the end of Jacob's life, he pronounces the blessings and curses that will befall each of his sons. And in chapter 49, verses 5 to 7, he groups Simeon and Levi together. He says, Simeon and Levi are brothers. Weapons of violence are their swords. Let my soul come not into their counsel. O oh, my glory be not joined to their company. 
For in their anger they killed men, and in their willfulness they hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. What is this behavior of Simeon and Levi? It's like the behavior of evil Lamech. Do you remember evil Lamech back in Genesis chapter 4? Descended of Cain, the murderer. Remember how he boasted? I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is 77-fold. That's what Simeon and Levi have done. And their cold revenge is a shameful disgrace. And we finally come to Jacob's forgetfulness. After the men are dead and the wealth is his, silent Jacob finally speaks to rebuke his sons, Simeon and Levi. But it's too little too late. He's not upset about his son's overreaction. He's not upset about them breaking the moral law. He's not upset about the killing and plundering of an entire city. He's upset because what they, of what they have done to his reputation with the Canaanites around them. That's his rebuke. Jacob was indifferent to the humility of Dinah. He was indifferent to the humility of the Shechemites. But he was not indifferent to how his pagan neighbors felt about him. Israel. That's Jacob, right? Israel, God's people, was more concerned about accommodating the Canaanites, God's enemies, than he was concerned about leading and protecting his very own family. Or the covenant of God. Leaving Simeon and Levi with the last word in verse 31. But they said, should he treat our sister like a prostitute? See, this this horrible chapter, this ugly chapter, ends with an open-ended indictment against Jacob. Where were you all this time, Dad? What were you doing when they were treating your daughter like a prostitute, Dad? When did you speak to represent God to the peoples of the land? Jacob didn't. So they did. At the heart of this, I think, Jacob forgot his word that he gave to God as a vow. And Jacob forgot God's desire that Israel would be his own distinct and holy people. Jacob was tempted by Hamor's offer to receive land, seed, and blessing from him rather than by faith in God. He would have them, but he would take them by the sword rather than by faith. Jacob should have told Hamar, I'll take nothing from you except justice for my daughter Dinah. That's what he should have said. Of course, the issue of intermarrying with unbelievers comes up here. It will be an ongoing problem for the Israelites. It's not an ethnic issue. It's a spiritual issue. Jacob should have told Hamar when he came, 
Our God is holy and we are his set-apart people. We will never marry those who are not set apart in worship to God. But, Hamor, the one true God is gracious to sinners, as I well know. And if you would truly believe in him and trust in his promises, you too can become spiritual children of Abraham. Isn't that what he should have said? Shouldn't he pursue godly justice and at the same time present God's grace? Shouldn't there be a call to repentance? Shouldn't we pursue justice and grace and call sinners to repentance at the same time? In chapter 28, verses 20 to 22, Jacob made a vow to God to return to Bethel. Which is why in chapter 35, verse 1, God tells Jacob, arise and go up to Bethel and dwell there. Jacob failed to keep his word to God to return to Bethel when he entered the land. He stopped about 20 miles short, bought land in Sukkoth, next to the city of Shechem. Jacob's in the wrong place. Jacob's in the wrong place. He's too close to Shechem. He's not separated from the people of the land as he ought to be. And as he would be if he would have remembered his vow to God. This is a devastating mistake. It's devastating to Dinah. It's been devastating to the Shechemites. What is shamefully missing from the people of God is their offer of the grace of God to the people of the land. They inflicted their revenge and they withheld any call to repentance. Even in the Old Testament, even in Genesis chapter 34, there are opportunities for God's people to display God's grace. But this time, there was no grace to be found. We have just a handful, I think, of lessons about grace to learn from this difficult passage. The first is, do not accommodate the world. Do not accommodate the world. We are called to live in the world, but not of the world, right? So let's ask ourselves some diagnostic questions to help us represent God in this land, which is not our home. Is my life and my family about pleasing God or fitting in? Am I more concerned about how sin offends God or how I may seem to be offensive to other people? Am I entangled with the world such that the world is shaping me more than I am a shining light in the world? 
Am I choosing my comfort and convenience over biblical conviction and character? Am I choosing cowardice instead of courage? Am I going along to get along? When I wake up each day, is the beating of my heart to make much of Christ no matter the cost? Or is the beating of my heart that my life would make sense to the people around me? John says, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Do not build your life too close to Shechem. Build your life in Jesus Christ. And in this way, you will display God's grace in this world as you ought. The second lesson, do not fail to see your own sin. Do not fail to see your own sin. How often are you horrified at one sin but fail to see another? How often are we horrified at the sins of others but fail to see our own sin? Look, we admire the brother's love and defense of their sister Dinah, but not their deceitfulness. Right? We sympathize. We'll even join in with them in the pursuit of justice. But not in their pursuit of revenge. Right? The people of the land don't recognize sin. That's to be expected. But Jacob seems to see sin and dismiss it. He can't see beyond his comfortable reputation with his pagan neighbors. Simeon and Levi see Shechem's sin, but not their own. Jacob's sons are consumed by revenge. You know in hate we become like those we hate, right? That's the trap. Jacob's appeasement of sin left a void that was filled by his son's revenge for sin. James warns us that the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. What a helpful verse. If you're angry, get ready. Unrighteousness is next because your anger does not produce God's righteousness. So Paul instructs us in Romans chapter 12. He says, repay no one evil for evil. Simeon, Levi, repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all, so far as it depends on you. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it's written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. The reason why we're able to forgive others when they sin against us is because we know that God will have his perfect justice. Because God has forgiven us our sins against him, we release 
our right to collect the sins of others. We give that to God and we leave it in His hands. And then that way, He has positioned us in this land so that we can be gracious to sinners. He's positioned us for that. Third, do not hide behind your religious activity. You wouldn't do that. I don't know, we're warned about it. Simeon and Levi hid their deception and their evil intentions behind the Old Testament covenantal sacrament of circumcision. It's blasphemy. It's blasphemy to hold up this Old Covenant sacrament, the sign of the covenant, and say it doesn't mean the covenant. They held forth the sign of the covenant in vain there. It's distressing that we can hide our sin behind gospel ordinances. Religious people will sometimes use religious things to cover their sin. Can you imagine? When Jacob's sons held forth the sign of the covenant to Hamor, Jacob should have stood up and said, Shechem, not only must you do this to marry my daughter, but you must turn from your family's idols and your people's false gods and turn to the one true God of grace and worship him. That's what Jacob should have said. Just like every person in chapter 34, we tend to make all of our problems about ourselves. Talking about you and me. We tend to make all of our problems about ourselves. It couldn't possibly be about anything else or anyone else, could it? We're indifferent to God's desire to bring glory to himself in our difficult circumstances. We want to make it about ourselves. We fail to look up and see the opportunities for the gospel of grace because that would involve us forgiving as we've been forgiven. We dare not hide our indifference behind our baptism and our taking of the Lord's Supper. We dare not justify our unwillingness to share the gospel of grace by our church attendance. How should God's people who have received the grace of God live among those who are not God's people and know nothing of the grace of God? By showing grace. Do not deny opportunities for grace. We don't like Shechem. But he comes to Jacob saying, let me find grace in your sight. He's a sinner. Not so different from Jacob who begged Esau Let me find grace in your sight. And we're not so different from Jacob when we come to God in the darkness of our many sins against him and say, oh God, let me find grace in your sight. Again. One time, Peter asked Jesus, how many times shall I forgive my brother who sins against me? 
Seven times? Seven's quite a few times. Seven enough? Turn with me to Matthew chapter 18. Many of you are familiar with the story. In Matthew chapter 18, we read what Jesus said to Peter. Beginning in verse 22, Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold, and his wife and his children and all that he had and payments to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii and seized him and began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me. And I will pay you. He refused. And went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw that what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. And they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant. I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant, as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also, my heavenly Father will do to every one of you, if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. How will people lost in their sin, ever know the grace of God. The same way that we have come to know the grace of God. By someone telling us and even showing us. Brothers and sisters, how should we live as God's people in a place among those who are not God's people? By looking to Jesus and sharing the gospel of grace. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you have sometimes difficult lessons for us to learn. Sometimes they're difficult because there are lessons that we've already learned but forgotten. Sometimes they're difficult because they call us to do difficult things like forgive those who have sinned against us. And sometimes because we're just too, too comfortable. Lord, help us to see opportunities for your grace. Help us to see opportunities for your glory and to live gracious lives for your glory among godless people that they might know that we're yours, that they might even come, that you might draw them and save them. It's our prayer in Christ's name. Amen.